Welcome to Delera Talks, the business English communication podcast for non-native professionals. My name is Paula, and I am co-hosting this show with Simon. In this podcast, we're going to be covering communication advice and tips to help express yourself with confidence in English and professional settings. So we hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back. Another episode of Talera Talks. Your hosts, as always, my name is Simon, and wherever you are, I hope you are having a great day, great evening, great morning. Paula, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so ready to talk about communication with yeah. with a very very cool guest, actually. Right, right. Just uh, three communication nerds today. That's uh, how we're doing it. Um, and our our guest today, um, very excited about our guest today. A book that I've just been looking at this past week. Um, so much inf- information, interesting concepts that we're going to discuss today. Uh, Dr. Rick Brandon, uh, the founder and president of the respected training firm Brandon Partners. Um, so Rick has devoted 30 plus years to designing and delivering leadership and professional development workshops on influence skills. So these are, you know, political and organizational savvy, high impact presentation skills, self-talk, self-accountability. I mean, so many of these really critical, we used to call them soft skills, but now we call them power skills. That's how we like to say it. Um, And Dr. Brandon has worked uh, with several Fortune 500 companies and leaders, helping people improve their results and work relationships by increasing the candor, clarity, and impact of their communication. Um, He's co-authored the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Survival of the Savvy, High Integrity Political Tactics for Career and Company Success. Um, As well, Brandon serves uh, as a distinguished faculty for the Institute for Management Studies and has taught graduate and undergraduate courses at colleges and universities. Um, A PhD in counseling at the University of Arizona, and as well a master's in uh, psychology from St. Lawrence University, and a bachelor's in psychology from Case Western Reserve. So today we are, among many things, going to be talking about his new book, Straight Talk, Influence Skills for Collaboration and Commitment. Um, And it's coming out soon. So very exciting time uh, for you, Rick. And thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I think there's, you know, a thousand and one things we could start with, but maybe the first we'd love to know is, you know, what influenced you to write this book? Well, first off, before I say that, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you for welcoming me into the world of Talera's talks. Uh, <laughs> it's a blast. And we know from each other and reading each other's bios, as you said, we're all communication nerds. So I look forward to this communication. And I appreciate it. I started to feel pretty impressed with myself from that glowing introduction. So I hope I can live up to that standard. Uh, so thanks, Simon and, and Paula. Um, in terms of my autobiography and stepping stones, it brought me to write the book. Um, I actually was into psychology and communication literally since before I was born. And the reason right. I say that is like I, I grew up in a pathologic, I like to say I grew up in a pathologically functional family. Um, so it was a very healthy family 
full of communication. But since before I was born, I was communicating at a cellular level because I am an identical twin. So I, I was into communication and connection and connectivity. And I, maybe it's a little corny, but I like to think that there's something at that level that got me into people and communication. Um, can you believe that God did this twice? He had the nerve <laughs> to do that. So uh, we're all looking at each other, of course, on, on, on Zoom. Um, but I was interested in communication all along. I even used to watch a TV show called The 11th Hour um, as, as a kid. It was about a psychiatrist. <laughs> Who does that as 10 years old? So uh, so I was into psychology. That's what I studied, as you, as you noted uh, in my... Uh, my degrees and my graduate degree, but very early on, even though I was doing counseling work, I realized that I didn't want to be a, um, what's the, well, a shrink. You know how people view a psychologist, oh, you say hello to you and or you say hello to me and and I say hello back and, and you think I'm trying to figure out what you meant by that. I didn't want to be doing <laughs> boxing people in as a shrink them into a diagnostic diagnostic category. I always viewed myself more as a stretch. How do I stretch people's potential and their boundaries and their communication? So I got into that. And for 30, 40, 35 years now, I've taught the skills that you mentioned, active listening, communication, getting agreements, conflict management. Uh, I took a little detour as you noted to write survival of the savvy which is less about interpersonal skills more about uh, political skills so there's interpersonal savvy and influence there's political influence and i i was thrilled when that book thanks for mentioning that was a bestseller i'll never forget i i went uh, do you do you guys have 7-elevens in spain i, I forget i've been unfortunately to Madrid not and, no uh, they're everywhere well, in denmark it, yeah we have them okay Okay, in Copenhagen. So I went into the 7-Eleven store and I, and, I, and I picked up the Wall Street Journal with, and turned to the book bestseller list. And I was there and I started screaming. And uh, uh, the clerk said, this guy really must like Slurpees. So, so, so uh, yeah, that was a joy. And so the reason I, I, and now we come 15 years forward after I've been doing a lot of work on political savvy, I realized I wanted to return to my roots of interpersonal skills. Mm -hmm. And and the reason was is I I it was I wrote it right as covid was going on. So I was in lockdown so I had time, but mm -hmm. also I was seeing people so disconnected, so wow. depersonalized, so living a life of social isolation, so feeling disconnected that it seemed like an ideal time to re return to my roots of interpersonal skills to connect and to collaborate and to have commitments with each other to support ourselves through this painful, um, discouraging time. Uh, and it was also ironically, last thing I'll say about that is it was ironic, it was a time when, um, when COVID was preventing people from taking workshops even virtual ones because of budget cuts. Right. Um, so what I wanted to do is write the book so that it was a quote workshop in a book so that it was my workshop that I've been doing for decades embedded into to the book. And that's why when you read the advanced copy, which I appreciate you doing, by the way, guys, uh, there's all these exercises and practices. So that's some of why I, I, I wrote the book and what brought me to it. Am I blabbing too much? How we do it? It's it's super interesting. And, and I love how, I mean, I also come from a psychology background and I love yes. how you described it, right? It's not only um, dealing with, so it's not only clinical psychology, so to say, it's it's more, there's so much more to it. It's all the social aspect is such a massive 
tool that you can implement to different aspects like political science and interpersonal skills and being connected. Uh, so yeah, I love that approach that that you gave. And and you're totally right with with the book. It did feel like a, a workshop in a book. I saw that you mm -hmm. had some pop quizzes, lots of examples, lots of uh, you know role play situations. So that was it, it was it's very interesting to read. Yeah. Paula, did it work? Did the did the technique I use work where I say, imagine yourself in the workshop where I kind of teleport you into the workshop and I'm presenting to you and you're at your table and I'm talking to you as you're at the table and doing that. Did that come across okay? Yeah, yeah, it actually did. So it's written in a way that it's very direct and it's it's almost as if someone was actually speaking rather than having super, super long sentences. And um, so I, I appreciated mm -hmm. that that writing style. Super. And I love what you said about psychology transcending the typical boundaries of, of clinical. And I, I think of it as the, that from shrink to stretch as being humanistic psychology. And I grew up in the 70s and 80s doing that work of uh, called humanistic or positive psychology and and how do we control our minds and have a positive outlook outlook and not not be fault finders of other people but be strength finders and then expanding their strengths and and potential so i, I consider psychology the best of it as being part of the human potential movement um, does that click for the two of you absolutely i mean i'm i'm totally with you there and i think this so much of of what we can do with communication is, you know, facilitate that in so many ways, right? Is is facilitate a positive interaction between people and how do we do that? I'm super interested to learn about your experience of doing this with, you know, professionals, with organizations, you know, over the past 25, 30 years. I mean, you I'm I'm sure you worked with with very high-level managers, you know. And, and working on this, this, these basic interpersonal communication skills, we call them, I call them basic, but they're not. I mean, it's not something that everybody <clears throat> considers as a basic part of their life. Mm -hmm. Throughout all of that time, and I, I don't want to put you in a box here, but I mean, were there kind of general themes that, that you saw or general challenges or weaknesses that a lot of upper management had, a lot of managers had when it came to interpersonal communication, when it came to, yeah, this, this you know, creating positive environments through communication? Sure, sure. Thanks for that. Yeah. And, and you're right. A lot of my work was with large companies, conglomerates, Fortune 500 companies. Actually, the, these courses were were taught, have been taught in literally 75 Fortune 500 companies, and they all had in common certain dynamics that that you're you're reminding me of. And the first one that comes to mind is the person becomes a manager first off at the lower level, and they're promoted not because of their they're they're promoted because of their technical expertise. They get if you think of the the classic definition of management, it's getting results, getting results with and through other people. Um, well, it used to be that they were getting their own results and now they're promoted because of their ability to get results through others. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have that skill set. So here I am, I'm managing sometimes the people I used to work with and complain to each other about management together. And now I'm the man or the woman, right? Who's in charge. And I've got a, it's a whole quandary. I've got to counsel them. I have to deal with their complaints and concerns. I have to receive feedback 
give feedback. I have to set new direction and delegate. I have to get agreements with them uh, and not, and I have to confront them sometimes and give corrected feedback and hold them accountable. They are in trouble. So, so I found that that was the first commonality across companies and also in the educational sector where I did these communication skills workshops for principals and superintendents and teachers. Um, so the people part, the quote soft skills, as you said, were hard skills and, and people weren't, weren't comfortable. Um, and then as people climbed up the organization, it became even more important. And that's, the, that's back to Daniel Goldman's work on emotional intelligence. He found that the higher you go in the company, the more important people skills and emotional intelligence are. Right. And it's more than twice as important as cognitive skills and technical expertise combined. So what fascinated me is it's more important, but the higher you go, you would think that people would have it more like you were saying, Simon, um, the level of upper management. They're just as much bozos on the bus as the <laughs> lower level managers because yeah. they don't necessarily, and, and they think, and they feel vulnerable in workshops. I would have upper level managers with the lower level managers and they were more freaked out. You know, the people under them felt vulnerable because my boss is here. Well, the people above them felt just as uncomfortable with new skills as the people below. So no magic to be promoted higher and higher, unless it's a marketing and sales driven company where people skills are, are taught and part of the technical part of their task. Um, right. Am I making sense there? Yeah, I, you definitely are. And I wonder if, and, and may, maybe this is true, maybe you've seen this or maybe you haven't, that this uh, this idea has kind of shifted in, in, in a way where, you know, where maybe hopefully my, my thought is that organizations are more open to, you know, concepts like emotional intelligence when it comes to leadership, <laughs> concepts like uh, vulnerability when it comes to management and leadership and how do we engage employees through more of these kind of humanistic communication approaches mm -hmm. rather than this more traditional kind of top-down hierarchical sense. Have you seen that shift at all or in, in organizations or, or, or am I just kind of dreaming here? <laughs> <laughs> You're dreaming, but I like the dream and I'll go with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the people you're talking about organizations, especially now waking up to what I call the interpersonal imperative. There's an interpersonal imperative more than ever before because of how complex things are, how volatile things are, the stress that's going on, the pace that's going on, the pressures that are going on. It stresses communication and it means the relationships become more alienated. Now it's even more true when it, with COVID because as we said before, people are separated. So people don't feel connectiveness. So how do we do that with the few times we are together and virtually how can we communicate so we we heal some of that separation and frankly loneliness that people feel there's a there's a, have you heard of a book by uh, noreen hertz it came out in 21 it's called the lonely century do you no, know that book she would be an interesting either. yeah she might be an interesting person to check in with but she talks about the research that says especially now one in five people are lonely there's a higher rate of anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. and even suicide. And people are more likely to quit, more likely to underperform. So a lot of the, the answer, not the cure, but certainly people skills and connecting through listening and clear agreements and being there for each other, advising and counseling. And, and um, when we have a tough conversation, doing it in a way that's interpersonally savvy, that what you call the emotional intelligence is 
is really important now. And if you and if you if you pull it to even conditions that were occurring before before COVID, if you think think of I'd ask you two to think of the the problems you've had at work in the last month, just right. to kind of cheer you up, you know, and make yeah. it a bright sunny day. Well, for most people, it's two to three number of problems are people problems and relationship problems and task problems. And I don't know about you, but it ain't the task problems that keep me up at night. It's the people <laughs> problems. So, so organizations are waking up to that interpersonal imperative because of the stress management needed because of the need to connect, the need to have innovation, which demands uh, a free flow of conversation and ideas that where people don't feel stifled. And then finally engagement that, that, magic buzzword that's going on. Engagement has been shown to only be there for 40%. Gallup found that 40% of people felt fully engaged. And the number one reason they left, my manager, my communication with my manager, or lack of recognition. Those are all people skills. Yeah. And I'm totally with you. I loved how you call it interpersonal imperative. Like now there's truly, there, there is truly a need and companies are seeing that. And I guess when, when that happens and when companies start to realize um that that there is a need then there's there's so much there's so many buzzwords and there's so much uh you know marketing around it as well and i guess that's when it can also get distorted and that's why i think having uh these kind of deeper conversations and having people like you with with 30 years experience and writing these these books like more in-depth books is mm-hmm. is so important so that you know the concept doesn't get distorted um, so I, I want to check, make sure I'm tracking you here. Okay. That you're, you're, I think you're putting your finger on the issue that just having the buzzword and saying it's important is one thing we, we have positive communication that we strive for, but I think you're saying that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're really doing it or know the requisite behaviors that comprise positive communication. Exactly. Uh, am I, am I tracking mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So that's where an applied behavioral scientist comes in. An applied behavioral scientist is someone, as you know, uh, who breaks down what feels like an art into teachable, learnable steps uh, and so that people know what to do and they can replicate it. That's what I love about the work that all three of us do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think, Paula, you touched on something right there with, with the kind of buzzwords and, and things like that is, is especially in HR and, and being an HR practitioner, I, I can put my hand up and say I've probably been guilty of this, but the, the whole use of buzzwords and, and, and I mean, people talk about emotional intelligence and then psychological safety and then, you know, all of these things that we're doing in an in a organization to make, you know, people feel uh, more included, to make them more engaged. I, so much of this is, it is really difficult work what you do. Rick, it's, I mean, the, the, the training of, you know, to actually get people to mindfully consider how they communicate is really, really difficult, especially in this environment that you talk about, that's constantly changing, very stressful. You know, when we just want to get something done the you know, a lot of times the last thing we're thinking about is mindfully communicating to someone about how we would like that to be done and, and if we can work together. Right. And so this training is really, really difficult um and 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 i think it's something where yeah unfortunately maybe it is easier to just say that we value this right um uh, not so much that we're putting in the the real work and time to do this and i think i would be interested to know kind of from your 
your perspective because I know we want to focus on two really kind of more distinctive points today, one being um, feedback, right? And how, how feedback processes happen. One of the, I, I've just read The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, and he talks a little bit about this concept of how important it is in very effective teams, the feedback process and how that works. Um, what's been your, I mean, this, because this takes up a big part of your book, what's been your experience with how people give feedback? How are we how are we taught to give feedback, you know, and, and, and what have you seen with, with uh, just in your experience of how people give feedback and, and what they can do to improve that? Sure, sure. Okay, if I just loop back to one, one, one concept you said that it's very hard to learn these skills in a way that isn't fluff or buzzword or over general. And it reminded me that, that I, I do think that two different problems can happen. Some people, you use the word guilty, um, I believe you use that if my yeah. hearing skills are going. And I think that's one of the two responses. The person who goes to the workshop and they're learning these skills, they are hit with awareness and suddenly they're aware of how much they suck at this potentially. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like going to a golf game and you're just a lousy golfer and you know, ignorance is bliss. I'm just duffing over here and or right. tennis. And then you go with someone who's really good or you take a lesson and you look realize how lousy you are already. And it can be a real, that awareness is the first step, like you say, and I want to learn these skills, but there can be a lot of guilt that goes on, which, which we have to deal with the emotionality of learning a new skill. People feel guilty. So I like to say, let's not make it guilt. Let's make it awareness. My mom was a travel agent for guilt trips. I'm not into guilt. So let's, let's not feel guilty. But the second response is the opposite, where they have a hyperactive ego gland, and they feel I don't need this, and they're offended. So they can either be passive and guilty, or aggressive and mad at the trainer or the coach. I don't right. know if you've ever run into that in the, in the coaching you do uh, yeah. in a second language. Um, yeah. Does that fit for you before we get into the feedback? It just caught me what you said. That, about no, it, it definitely does. I think the awareness concept really being hit by that is is a is a big thing, um, especially when we talk about cross-cultural communication, um, and and a lot of a lot of the uh, not a lot of the some of the professionals that we work with, it's like they've gone half of their career without actually discussing you know cultural differences in the workplace, and then you know when we sit down and, and break it down a little bit, and and then all of these different memories start slapping them in the face of like, oh my God, I was so rude to this person or, oh my God, I must've sounded like such a jerk to that person. And, and, and so that, that awareness definitely happens. We're maybe fortunate that most, I, th I think all of, all of the students that we have actually want to <laughs> want to work with Talera and, and want to, you know, come to us uh, voluntarily. So, so, you know, we're lucky that we don't, uh, I don't think experience that too much. <laughs> yeah. So you're over that hump. Then it's just a matter of dealing their awkwardness with learning the new skill, which is uncomfortable, including right. giving feedback. See what I did there? Um, there you so, go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't mean to get off on a rant there, but, but that is interesting. The dynamics of the learner, the psychological readiness to learn what gets in the way. So feedback, uh, I'll never forget how important feedback is. Uh, and I haven't read Coyle's book, but I will. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I'll never forget hearing Ken Blanchard speak at a conference. And uh, he said, it's 
the, the audacity that people don't need feedback. It would be like going to a bowling alley and bowling and imagining that there's a screen in front of the, the pins. You never knew, you never knew how many pins you knocked down. How long would you feel motivated? Right. Right. So, so feedback is critical. And then we get into, is it done in a constructive or destructive way? And, and what kind of feedback is, I think people need positive feedback to reinforce that's been shown to be more important than corrective feedback. You get more growth and direction by, by the strokes. And you know that if you ever have a dog that you're training, right. Uh, or a, a child and, and your employees are just kids with bigger feet. Uh, so, so we need to really understand the power of positive feedback positive reinforcement, again, not in a BS global fluff way, but when you did this, name it, what a camera would see behaviorally, uh, here's what you did. Even positive feedback, I don't want to tell you, hey, you're a great team player. Okay, well, groovy, but that's, that's, that's global praise. What are you doing that comprises being a team player? Because that might be something different to you, Paula, than it does to, to you, Simon. Maybe to you, it means I, I contribute ideas in a meeting. To Paula, it might mean um, that you share, uh, that you um, speak up and you share information about the customers with the new salespeople so they understand whatever the team team needs. So it's positive feedback, corrective feedback, but also the toughest kind of feedback to give, which is to hold you accountable because you've broken an agreement, you've broken a standard, a quality or standard or productivity standard, or worse, you broke a commitment that you made to me, yeah. a pattern of broken agreement. Everyone else is keeping the agreement. You're not. Most people are okay with coaching feedback if you first set the standard and, and you've, you've taught them in a training or in a coaching or in information sharing. Now they're not doing it right. So they're expecting it. I still want to ask, can I give you feedback? I don't want to give unsolicited feedback. It's implied if I'm your manager that I should give you feedback. I still say that's cow cookies. At the, that time, are you ready for my feedback? Is it okay if I give you some feedback? Uh, and what I want to do is three things in terms of just coaching feedback. I want to ask for permission. Then secondly, I want to ask you what you thought went well and what could be even better. So I facilitate self-feedback. And then I want to get my feedback, those two kinds. First, what are you doing great? What's hit the ball out of the ballpark? What could you do better? So I want to ask permission. I want to do, facilitate self-feedback. I want to give you positive feedback and then any improvement. I don't even like to call it corrective. What's your growth edge? Yeah. What's your growth edge? Um, why, and so that's why, all for, I'm sorry, sorry go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm just, I'm really curious why asking uh, for the self-feedback first before you give your feedback? Well, I, I believe that you probably, a couple of reasons. One, you probably know what you did well and what you were uncomfortable with. And so if you hear the words out of your own mouth, and then I can add more to support it or something you haven't thought of, does a couple of things. It makes you less defensive when I'm giving you uh, corrective feedback or improvement feedback. It also gives me a clue about your critical thinking and your self-awareness. As a manager, don't you want to understand, is this person blind? Do they have self-blind spots uh, or, or are they um, hip to what, what, what the issues are for them? Do they have a self-awareness and self-regulation to know what they're working on? Um, and it makes us, and also thirdly, it makes us more of a team rather than, like you said before, you know, top down, command and control. I am God. I am, I'm superior. We're right. both a team trying, that's the, the subtitle of straight talk 
influence skills for collaboration and commitment. I want you to feel comfortable and collaborative in whatever behavior change that you need to do after my feedback, because otherwise it's not commitment, it's compliance. Yeah. Does that make sense? Is that so, so that's everything we're talking about now is coaching feedback. And even that can be tricky, we're saying. So I want to set the standards first. So I'm giving you feedback, hopefully about something that we've already talked about or a new issue that we haven't talked about, but at least I've tried to set the bar like you've been to a training or read the manual or you've shadowed uh, or I've coached you before. Now, we're, now we go to a sales meeting. Afterwards, I wanna do a debrief at the curb or uh, in the car. I ask you, it's okay if we talk about and debrief it. Pretty soon, that'll get you'll get used to me giving you feedback, but I first or second time or anytime, I still wanna say, Okay, if we uh, do our debrief, then I facilitate the self-feedback, give you positive feedback, give you corrective feedback. How does that sound as a, I don't know if you guys have had coaches that have either done that or not done that. It might be interesting to hear your reflections on that. I, I love that first step of asking for self-feedback. It's it's such a great, almost like a, a, a way to, to get in their buy-in and, and having yeah, them yeah. their conversation. So that's great. And then having that, you know, the positive uh, part of the improvement section, there's a part in your book where you also um, ask people to provide just the facts. And I think this ties back to, there's this, one of the many cognitive biases that we have is this fundamental attribution error where we tend to judge others on their personality, but we judge ourselves on uh, the situation. So for example, uh, if someone's late, we will think, oh, they're very unprofessional. That's their personality. Mm -hmm. But when we are late, it's because of the traffic. We're not unprofessional. So I think that's one way of, um, and I love the, the, the pop quiz that you have in there to check if your language is actually biased or not. Uh, I, I yeah. think that's such a powerful piece of advice there. Thank you. Yeah. And, and bias-free is sometimes called behavioral or objective language when I'm giving you feedback. Again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're unprofessional. I'm saying you're 10 minutes late. Mm -hmm. I'm not even talking about why, but, but it, because if I don't use bias-free language, then it's about my communication, not about your behavior. So I want to use objective. What would a camera have seen as a camera test or just the facts, ma'am? Detectives say just the facts, ma'am. We don't want opinions. That's not allowed in court. Not that you're on trial, but we want to be able to know beyond a shadow of a doubt what happened. And, and I don't know that you're unprofessional. I don't know that I'm not trying to give you input about your feelings, your motivation. I'm not trying to diagnose. I think the reason you're doing this is you have an issue with authority. And clearly when you spoke out of turn, you have an issue with, I'm not an amateur psychologist, back off Freud. So, <laughs> so I want to be non-inflammatory. It's not judgmental. It's not about put downs. You, you might not like that I'm giving you feedback about uh, the report had uh, these five typos, but you can't disagree with it or get defensive. But if I say this is sloppy, well, 10 people might agree that, but it doesn't help me get your buy-in. And I've created defensiveness just by how I give you the feedback by right. not citing the standard. And then by using language that doesn't tell you, here's what, here's, it's a, it, some people call it a three-part I message. You guys have heard of this out of the wazoo, you know, here's the, here's, Here's how I feel about this is going to be in there somewhere. Here's the behavior. Here's what a camera saw that you were doing. Here's the negative impact of that. If it's corrective feedback, I also do that with positive feedback. Here's what you did. Here's what a camera would have seen. 
here's the impact of that and possibly how I feel. Some people don't like sharing the feelings, especially in the book. So that, so how I taught that bias-free language and plugging it into a three-part I message, when you do such and such, such, I feel such and such because, and then the positive, I'm sorry, the actual cause and effect, the tangible impact on me, the, the accuracy, the team reputation, the customer or clients uh, attitudes, loss, et, et, et cetera. So, so we're now talking about preventing defensiveness when I give feedback by how I give it, both in coaching, but especially now we're talking about confronting someone's uh, negative behavior uh, over and over again, they break an agreement, or maybe it's one one behavior that's so egregious, they cuss at a client's meeting in an appropriate way. So I need to use that three-part message. And then I got to deal with the defensiveness because you're going to, even if I'm trying to remove defensiveness, you're going to have it. Cause I was just going to ask, how do you, how do you deal with that? The defensiveness piece? Mm-hmm. Okay, so first thing I do is I try to prevent it with my language and by having a previous upfront discussion. So you don't say, well, we never talked about that. Uh, So we have talked about it, not just in the original agreement where I set the standards or got your agreement, but I also, if you blow it the first time, you don't want to start confronting right away. You know, to err is human, to forgive divine, not like Mae West said, to err is human, but it's divine. No, uh, to err is human, to remind divine, okay? And so I remind you before I confront you. Then if you keep doing it wrong, that everyone else is keeping this commitment and agreement or standard, now I have the right. I'm not doing my job if I don't confront you. So I say it with the I message, with bias-free language. Now I got to deal with your defensiveness. The first piece of that, which fascinates me, is most people think of defensiveness in the wrong way. You have to, we have to change it. Look at me. You have to do this. No, I believe it's helpful. (laughs) It behooves you, a word I've never used in a sentence before. It behooves us all to to change my mindset. It's the internal change. So I'm not hooked or take your defensiveness personally. You're going to get defensive either fight or flight, break down, cry, or, or, or want to leave or distract me, change a subject, or just be silent or fight, you know, where you blame me, you blame other people, you threaten me, you say, well, then maybe I should just quit, you know, you start to manipulate or yell at me. So I need to change my mindset that you're not doing that on purpose. You haven't strategized and planned to manipulate We Let's see, how am I going to be defensive to Rick? My definition of defensiveness is it's an automatic physiological, emotional, and behavioral reaction to perceive threat, attack, or loss. Let me say that again. It's an automatic, physiological, emotional, and behavioral reaction, a natural response to perceive threat, loss, or attack. Once I look at it that way, it then I'm less likely to take it personally. If you lie to me, that's an alternative fact. But let's not get hooked by the literal truth of what you're saying. Let's look at the psychological and emotional truth. You feel threatened, even if because you know that you're wrong, right? Yeah. I've reminded you even, but people still get defensive. Haven't you guys ever gotten defensive? Even you, you act like a kid or you do things that you wouldn't say to other people uh, in public. Does that make sense that you, that we sometimes act that way? We're not proud of it, but we got we defensive. Do. Yeah, for sure we do. But having that detachment of this is the situation, this is the, the emotional reaction versus, okay, this is what I, as a rational human being, actually think. So 
getting yeah. down or like going back to that uh, rational side of people, I guess, is what well, what yeah. happens. And, and you use the word rational. That my point is, at the moment that I give my message to you, even if you know you're wrong, that feels like that message is strong. Here's what you did. Here's how I felt about it. Here's the negative impact. That's a powerful message. Uh, and so you're going to get defensive and it's no different than the caveman gets defensive fight or flight to get away from the saber tooth tiger. And, and the blood is just like in caveman days is not going to the brain for rational conversation and hearing it and problem solving. It's going to the extremities like the caveman to, you know, to fight or flight. And so I have to change my self-talk and saying, okay, he's not lying to me. He's feeling defense. He is lying to me technically, literally, but mm -hmm. the psychological truth is he's scared. Yeah. He's threatened. He feels loss of, of face. And so I, I need to pay attention to the emotions and attend to them. And the way that I do that isn't to push back on you. Because if, if I push you with my hand, your automatic response is to push back. You didn't strategize it. Same is true with the lying or with the changing the subject or the, whatever the fight or flight is. So I need to listen down the feelings. I need to use the act of listening. The chapter four and five that you guys read about. Thank you. I appreciate you investing the time and energy and expertise. But I've, I've got to paraphrase your thoughts and your feelings. Right. So you don't think I'm being fair to you, Joe. It, it feels like I'm confronting you and I'm not your boss. So who the heck am I to be calling you on this or giving you feedback when I don't manage you? And you, you look like you, you're kind of steamed at me. You're darn right I am, Rick. You know, who the hell are you? You're not my... Now I need to paraphrase again. You're not done. The pipes are clogged. I don't want to try and reassert my message, my, my, my feedback or confrontation until I've listened you down because the pipes are clogged with emotion and there's nothing going to flow rationally if the pipes are clogged. I call the active listening skills, I call it interpersonal Drano. Do you guys know what Drano is? <laughs> yeah. It, it unclogs the pot plumber pipes. So, so those are some of the things to think about with defensiveness to, to prevent it by having the previous meetings where we talk about about whatever the issue to prevent the issue, then to have a reminder, then be careful of what I say, the three-part I message, and then to change my, my self-talk about the meaning of defensiveness so I don't get hooked and take it personally and push back. I push you again and you, now we push and we escalate versus I'm going to listen it down. You will not be mad at me or you, you will gradually calm down and be ready to work on a solution. You're not going to say, stop trying to understand my feelings, Rick. You know, it's like fighting fog. They're not going to fight it. It will feel like you're giving up control, but it's kind of like going fishing. If you've got a big fish, you don't reel it in. You give it line. It's counterintuitive. You give up control to stay in control. Is that how, how, what, what do you it's, think about what I'm suggesting here? It's like it's this hard. swinging doors. We've we've talked about this uh, analogy in previous podcasts where we, you know, this swinging doors where you have to push to get through. If the other person mm. is also pushing through, it's really hard. Like you get stuck mm. and the, the communication doesn't flow. There's no way anyone is going to get through. And so sometimes mm -hmm. it's important to back off a little bit, let the other person, you know, get their way in. And then that's when... Um, you're able to to do your thing. Yeah, yeah we're aligning. We're, I like that analogy of the swinging door. We let them into the conversation instead of I'm going to monologue over and over. When here's what you here's everything you've done wrong on this since before you were born, and 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 you're getting defensive and defense. I want to hear it. I want to invite. It'll feel like you're you're losing, but you're not because you are going to take your turn and you've earned the right to respond. They're more likely to hear 
you if you first hear them again, not just at a thought level, but how do they feel about it? Even if they're not saying it, you can see it. They're screaming at you with their mouth shut. You want to pull that out. You look really pissed off at me, Rick. You really look pissed off. I mean, uh, uh, Simon. So you want to give them permission to say it because it's just because if they don't say it, that doesn't mean it's not there and the pipes are clogged. You're not going to hear my message. So thanks for that swinging door concept. I love that. Glad you liked it. How much of this have you seen just in, in your experience about establishing trust before you get to this? Because we talked about laying the groundwork, right? For, for even before you get to this uh, situation. I mean, it seems like you have really healthy cultures where feedback is done in a, you know, in an intelligent way, in a mindful way. Um, have you come across uh, just in your experience uh groups or 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 uh managers who have helped to to shift the feedback culture in their team um because it seems like at least for myself if i'm i'm going into a new team i want to trust that there is an open and, and healthy feedback culture because if there isn't then i know my own personal kind of fight or flight is is flight you know what i mean like i'm out of there i i don't even i'm not even gonna fight in the conversation i'm just gonna say all right like you know I'm going to, I'm done with this. Right. So, so how much does yeah. trust play a role even before we get to this, to this point? Yeah. And how do I cultivate that trust? Cause that's back to, that's a cool buzzword. And of course it's, it's essential. It's, it's, hmm. it's, I'm not going to say everything, but it is, uh, it's pretty much everything because yeah. if the trust isn't there, um, you know, we're in trouble. So, so I earn the trust by being vulnerable and admitting my mistakes Wow, that really does it. I'm not a command and control back to what you were saying, the old school, uh, you know, theory X management. I'm the boss and I say what's so, uh, and I don't have a conversation about it. That breaks stress. So it's a two-way dialogue, collaboration, subtitle, straight talk, influence skills for collaboration and commitment. I have, I don't just write you a memo. If we're one-on-one, -on -one, I don't just say, here's what I expect, because an expectation is not the commitment or an agreement. An expectation is one way. A monologue, a, an agreement is two ways. So I build trust by asking you that swinging door in an agreement discussion, what concerns do you have about what I'm asking you to do? And I really hear it. And I active listen that too, upfront yeah. discussion. Uh, and now if I have partnered with you to remove that barrier or give you a rationale of why this is important, you feel involved and committed. So we build that trust. So the bottom line is if I come off as a distrustful boss because I don't have dialogue, I have monologue or worse, dual logs, and I don't have conversations. It's not fair for me to then give you negative feedback if I haven't set the standard, back to the bowling analogy. Um, and I become like that command and control, uh, that's aggressiveness. That's aggressiveness, not building trust and com commitment, it's building compliance. I will never forget the guy, I'll call him Samurai Supervisor. He didn't agree with anything that we're saying. And I said, so, so uh, you know, he was, he was um, an SOB about everything, uh, demanding and, do, and not having dialogues and just putting people down when they did things that were off that he hadn't set the standard of. People right. don't read minds. It was really partly his fault, but not having these upfront conversations. I said, so, so uh, done. So Samurai, so Sam, uh, how many people you have working for you? And he said, oh, about half of them. <laughs> you know, people quit and leave, literally talk about the great resignation. We're causing some of it or worse, they quit and stay. 
They don't physically resign and leave, but they've resigned on the job because they don't trust me. There is no trust. And and I'm, I'm part of the problem. They check out emotionally. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And they spread it too, because they're talking about, uh, so these back to the interpersonal imperative, trust is imperative, upfront conversations, reminding people, giving feedback in a fair, objective, bias-free way, and knowing how to handle the defensive reaction. Because if they don't have it, check their pulse, Mm -hmm. because they're probably dead. We all, we all feel it. I have a question for you both, and I don't want to open up a new whole discussion because I know uh, we've, we're, we're already taking up uh, quite a lot of your time, Rick, today. But uh, on, on the topic of handling defensiveness, um, I've heard many experts say that when you give negative feedback, you should do that in person, like live, even like either through a video call or actually face to face. And as someone that I, I deal better with written text, what do you think about that, giving that almost like a heads up on, okay, this is the feedback that I'm about to give you. And then you actually have the discussion. And that's a way of preparing people. That's what I feel works for me. But I don't know from both of your, uh, I would love to get your opinion on, is that a good approach? Or uh, should you just say it um, speaking? What's your take, Simon? Because there's no one right answer. You know, the by the way, the answer to every question in a workshop, you know, is it depends on the people mm-hmm. involved. Right. Or, or the other, the other answers are we'll get to that after the break. What is the group thing? Or my favorite, it, uh, it's in the book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but what do you think, Simon? And then I'll share my couple of my thoughts. You know, I I, I think because Talera, we're we're a completely remote team, right? So um we I, I'm, I'm playing around with this a little bit more and I'm really, I feel more comfortable about it on my end, but it's the, the kind of transfer away from messaging, whether it be emails and Slack messaging to short voice uh, messages. Um, so like we use Slack, right? As our internal comm uh, app, right? And more and more I'm using short uh voice messages because I don't, I'm never happy with providing negative feedback if I need to about something or, um, or if there's something that could have been done better or something that needed to be different. I'm never totally happy about the way I communicate it written. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just feel like there's something about, there's obviously you'll know this and you talk about it in your book, but there's so much of an importance around tone of voice in how you communicate that when it comes to providing negative feedback, or if I ask for something to be a little bit different, I'm, I'm sending a, a voice message um, to that. That's a good person. one. And, yeah. And, yeah. and this is something where I think it's interesting because I've had it sent to me where if it is negative or if, if there needs to be something different, I will listen to it a second time or a third time. And I always feel better that second or third time after I listen to it, when I realize I have that small instinct of like, oh, like I screwed up with this thing, right? Or, and then I listen to it a second or third time and then it's like, okay, no, like I'm telling, but I can hear in the tone of her voice or in the tone of his voice that he's not upset at me, that I didn't do something wrong. Like it's just something could have been done differently. That's okay. All right, great. And then let's move forward. I don't know. I'm playing around with this concept. I don't know what you think about that. 
Well, it's just every person's reality is different. The two of you are even talking about differences. Um, and and Simon, you said a few things that I that I that triggered some thinking on on my part. And and um, the first one is the the piece about not having tone of voice. You also don't have the visual. I can't see your your reactions. I can't see your eye roll that I better paraphrase. You looks like this, this is coming out of left field for you and I can't hear the tone of voice. So that's as me looking at your, if I'm giving you feedback, uh, uh, if I'm online, if I'm writing it to you, I can't see your reactions when you get it. I can't, and even uh, if I'm on the phone with you, yeah. I can't see your reactions. I could, at least can hear your tone of voice. So back to your original question, Paula, my first choice, if at all possible. Now you like things in writing and there may be other reasons so that you can read it over and over again, you know, so you're less likely to be defensive uh, if you can read it over and over again and think about it. Some people, they read it and they get even more defensive if they didn't like it in the first place. So again, it depends. Um, but for that reason, this is my bias is um, sometimes we don't have it. We can't have a face-to-face. -face. So at least I want to try and have a video conference like this where we can see yeah. each other. We can't do that. Now we eliminate the visual. Let's at least have the vocal and the mm -hmm. empathy uh, by having a phone call. If that can't happen, then of course my fallback is to not just forget about it, um, but to have it in, in writing. So those are the reasons why I prefer it. Be, not being just a written text or email. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a thought on how to do that, uh, which you also talked about, Simon. But this goes to the uh, research of Albert Morabian. You may be familiar of in your uh, psychology studies. He's the guy that in presentation skills, he, you know, that at the point of impact, a person's uh, message and emotional meaning is only made by 7% or at 7% of the words, 38% it comes through the vocal qualities and visual images and clues are, are 55% of the message. So, so if I want there to be all of that 100% impact, I don't want just the 7% of the words through a text or an email. Um, right. So if I do have to just use, use text, then I like what you said, Simon, you said, back and forth short, short conversations. So there might be a quick voicemail that says, um, uh, or even an email, I think is true. First, ask permission to have the conversation to give share some feedback. I want to share. I, I don't want to. I actually don't want to use the word negative feedback. I'll use the word improvement feedback as well as what I loved about it. Positive, uh, just a feedback. So you're yeah. not defensive at the start. And then I hear back from you. Sure, the next email or voicemail. I'm going to, maybe there's even multiple ones, like you said, but I at least want to reference back to the previous conversation as we learned in the um, customer service, um, customer contact um, training that, that uh, Joe had us take, blah, 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 blah. So what I liked about that or, and, and or what concerned me about what, what you did was using the three-part I message. What am I going to do first though? If I want to in writing, I could even ask for you yourself feedback first. I see you nodding, Paul. I mm -hmm. want back to what you really like. I like that. Why not? Idea. Before I give you my feedback and write you that, I'd be interested in what you thought. And I do have some on some good news and some correction news. I let you know, so it's not like I'm pulling my punch. You know that I have both sides. But why not ask the person first? Now again, for the same reason as face to face or phone, you're going to be less defensive. Wow, that and I can stroke you and 
congratulate you and thank you for being so self-aware. And I'm really glad you thought of that. I thought of one other thing. So I don't need to repeat the negative feedback that you give yourself. Right. So that's cool. So anyway, I'm, I'm just brainstorming like you are as we talk, but what, what do you take away from this, uh, this, this part of our conversation? I really liked how you combined. Um, so yeah, asking for permission is something that can be, uh, an easy thing to apply, but that can lead to many, many benefits in terms of providing feedback. And I loved how you implemented that in my, in my situation, right. Where I do prefer to be somewhat warned so that I don't get defensive in, in the moment. Mm-hmm. So by asking for permission in writing, I already know what topics you want to talk about. I've already given it some thought and then I'm ready to have that in-person live conversation. So that's great. Yeah. That's really Sweet. good. Um, we wanted to talk about conversational Aikido, but I'm I'm afraid we've uh, pretty much run out of time. I really, really would love to encourage listeners to read your book. Um, I, I I wrote this. What's poem. the name of the book? What's the name of the book again? <laughs> I, I I forgot the name of the book. <laughs> it's it's really straight really talk. straight talk. You need to read it wherever you are. Straight Thanks talk. Thanks a lot. It's it's awesome. Uh, and and yeah, this conversational Aikido chapter in particular, you start with uh, Mary Poppins uh, quote, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And I just thought that was such a great to, you know, to start uh, that conversation. But um, yeah, this was such an interesting conversation, Rick, and, and I could keep talking and talking with you and, and uh, discussing psychology communication, but it's been it's been really great. Thank you so much. I got a lot out of it too. I learned a lot and I loved how we made a conversation and went in directions we didn't even plan on and covered a lot more that way. Thank you. I appreciate talking to you both. And I wish you and your listeners a lot of good faith, a lot of uh, good skill. And then we're not leaving it to good luck that way. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, Rick, if people want to uh, purchase Straight Talk, if they want to get in touch with you or, or follow you, where can they do that? So a couple of things, my personal email, rick at the name of my company, Brandon Partners, plural, B-R-A-N-D-O-N, rick at Brandon Partners, plural. If I'm in the country, I'll answer within 48 hours. Um, if I'm not, I take a little longer. The second way to contact is, of course, Amazon, the book, Straight Talk. There's a lot of other Straight Talk books, but not the subtitle. Influence Skills, Straight Talk, Influence Skills will get you there. The full title is Straight Talk, Influence Skills for Collaboration and Commitment. But I would like to give a present to your listeners and you guys. Without Whether or not you buy the book, please go to my, my website, which is brandonpartners.com slash straight talk book. If you go to brandonpartners.com slash straight talk book, uh, yeah, of course, you can order the book from there, pre-order uh, at Amazon. It links to it. But you'll have a straight talk self-assessment complimentary, whether or not you buy the book and several other tools about straight talk to help you learn about straight talk, even without reading the book. I want to give this stuff away. So those are three ways to contact. Hope that's helpful. Absolutely. I'm I'm definitely check that out. And I think that's something that, yeah, people need and want these skills and, um, and these tools. uh, And I think that's an awesome thing. Uh, We'll be sure to put all of the uh, links and everything in the show notes. Um, but, uh, yeah, Paula, uh, Rick, thank you both, uh, for, for meeting up today. I know I had a great conversation, learned a lot. Um, and, uh, I think I, 
I think we can now continue on our day and I'm going to try a couple of these techniques. <laughs> I heard my girlfriend just walked in the door. So I'm going to, I'm going to go out and just kind of try <laughs> a little bit of conversational Aikido. So if, uh, if, yeah, we didn't get to that today, but uh, to all the listeners, yeah, check out the book and, and check out this conversational Aikido. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty interesting. So um, Rick, thank you so much. Uh, Paula, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners out there, as always, keep learning. And that's all we have for you today. We hope you enjoyed it. And remember to subscribe to Talera Talks. We'll be back soon with more. And visit our website at talera.com for more valuable content on business English. You can also request a free consultation on the best ways for you and your team to improve your communication skills. So have a great day and keep learning. Keep learning.